Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Pitbrook, and I'm joined today by Chief Sports Writer Jonathan Liu. Hello. Luke Brown. Hello. And Rory Campbell, our special guest today. He's the owner of CNN Sporting Risk, has a background in football analytics and sports betting, and offers consultancy and predictive modelling to various sectors of sports betting. So today we're going to bring in some of his analytical data insights into our football chat. The weekend started with Tottenham Hotspur beating Swansea City in the FA Cup quarterfinal. Jonathan, you were there. What did you make of it? Uh, I thought Tottenham made it a lot easier for themselves than they could have done. I think Swansea certainly weren't writing it off, given their relegation troubles. They uh, hadn't reached a FA Cup quarterfinal since 64, and, and it was a really disappointing afternoon for them. Spurs were great. Eriksen was was brilliant and a, a different kind of Ericsson performance to the one we normally see from him because without Kane without Deli Alley uh they needed Ericsson to be not just their their heartbeat but also their kind of their their energy as well uh and it was it was a real sort of Denmark against Ireland performance from him where, where the one where he kind of grabbed the game uh so yeah Spurs into the semi-finals and then they'll play United I think in the semi semi-final and um yeah pretty decent performance from them it's a topic that's come up a lot, but how much do you think Tottenham need to win a trophy this season, or do you think do you share the kind of Pochettino view that the the trophies are less relevant than the actual performance? It's become kind of a a bit of a running joke among Spurs fans. Like, yeah, but have they won a trophy? As as in, just a, a kind of a stick to beat them with. I mean, my view on this, and it's not quite aligned with Pochettino, who who basically sees a trophy as as like a just part of the process. Uh, and he, he was saying this again after the game that the process is the new stadium the process is this one of continual improvement and the trophies are kind of a less important basically they're just the byproduct if they do the process right the trophies will follow but the trophy is not the be all and end all whereas I I think that one of the if you could pick a fault in this Tottenham side is that when they really need to raise their game in a, in a big high stakes occasion they they don't essentially, and and whether it's the the two goals they conceded against Juventus, or when they threw away a tie that they really should have won, or FA Cup semi final against Chelsea last season, when they need to raise their game and bring out that level of performance that you need to win a trophy, that's what they haven't been able to do yet, and that's that's the same whether it's the FA Cup or the Champions League. So do they need to win a trophy? I mean, it's a stupid question in itself, but it's more what the trophy represents if that that makes any sense it's what they'd have to do to win that trophy rather than the trophy itself that they need Rory what do you think about whether Tottenham have improved enough that they don't need a trophy or do you think that a trophy is the only way to to kind of cap off four years of improvement under Pochettino well I I think Daniel Levy would probably say that sustained Champions League qualification before they go back to White Hart Lane would be the um, the more measurable way of saying that they've improved and they've got to where they want to be. Uh, I think the trophy thing probably gets slightly 
overplayed for them. Uh, actually, if you look at their underlying performance metrics, there has been consistent improvement ever since Pochettino took over, and that includes this year. Uh, despite they're probably not going to finish in the same position they did this year, but they definitely have, in terms of their underlying performance, improved as a team, despite the not much imp- like on the surface improvement in the playing staff. Can you speak about how they have improved this season, even with, as you say, without having added many better players to the squad? Yeah, well, they've last season they, I think it was quite an interesting thing for them to have to adapt to moving away from White Hart Lane, as in they were playing. Uh, their home record last season obviously was fantastic. Their underlying performances at home were excellent. And this season they've kind of had to adapt slightly. They've had to become more of a counter-attacking team because of the fact that, that small pitch at White Hart Lane where they were just overrunning teams with their combined intensity and like com- combinations in the final third. They haven't been able to exploit that in the same way at Wembley, but they've actually had to adjust the way they played. That started with them playing the wing-backs a lot more early in the season. And even now when they've gone back to the back four, it's still a kind of similar style with Dyer dropping in as a third centre-back. But... Their actual underlying chance creation um, has changed in the way it's being produced, but it's actually also improved. The underlying numbers have improved. I think it's hard to kind of disagree with what Pochettino is saying, I think. I mean, you know, a Champions League campaign that involved beating Real Madrid and Borussia Dortmund is obviously more indicative of a team doing well than beating Rochdale and Wimbledon in an FA Cup. But... I just don't know whether we should be taking him at face value in what he's saying, really, because obviously he's been so committed to this line of we're on a process and a trophy is a bauble, essentially, and we should be competing for league titles, you know, blah, blah, blah. If he was suddenly to come out now and say, oh, actually, you know, winning the FA Cup would be great and a great indicator of, of how far we've come, he knows that the narrative would kind of be co-opted into, oh, well, Tottenham need to win the FA Cup to kind of salvage an underwhelming season which is just completely the opposite of what he's been saying all along. So he, I think maybe you know the way he's been talking over the last two years is preventing him from actually acknowledging publicly, at least, how important it would be to, to win a trophy. I think we're in this strange position with Spurs now where whenever they fail it's be, or even lose, it's being seen as some kind of mental failure. In a way, I think some teams get themselves into this position whereby anything they do wrong is explained as bottling or choking. It's a bit like the South African cricket team. And Tottenham, for whatever reason, are now in that position. Um, but I do think that, you know, for example, Juventus, that I don't think that was necessarily bottling. That was just f- five minutes in which Juve happened to play much better than Spurs. However, going into this FA Cup semi-final against Manchester United, which is now this huge, huge game in, in Pochettino's time there, probably the biggest single match, I think it... Spurs, I think Spurs are now so much better than United that if they were to lose that game, you could fairly say that it was a bottling. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the dictionary definition of bottling is. I mean, I, I don't think they bottled it against Juventus. I just thought they, they managed the game very poorly. Uh, and that, that that's a, a footballing deficiency rather than a, than a mental one. Uh, I, I think fans measure the success of a team not just in trophies, but in moments. And like Luke said beating Real Madrid and Borussia Dortmund that's those are great moments and they're probably bigger than some you know beating I don't know a Southampton in the League Cup final would necessarily have been and if you look at some of the great teams in history Holland 74 Brazil 1982 Keegan's Newcastle they won nothing but they're very fondly remembered of course yeah like I mean Keegan's Keegan's Newcastle are far better remembered than uh, the Blackburn Rovers team that won the Premier League in the mid nineties, I think on on the subject of bottling, I think like there's actually a uh, there's 
and there are a number of statistical things you can look at what bottling means and you can start to analyse the differences in teams and players' performances in key moments of games and in moments that aren't as significant. So Arsenal would actually be a lot more of a bottling team and the fact that in key moments of games they tend to go missing. But if you take Spurs and look at their performance at key moments this season, I'd say the Juventus game, whilst it may have been bad game management, they're probably up against the best game managing team in the world. Mm-hmm. Their performances against in both games against Real Madrid and against Dortmund, uh, both games against United, um, the only exception would be the away performance at City, but I think a lot of teams could have said that this, this year, that that hasn't gone very well for them. Um, and actually their performance in key moments of games and the key significant moments have been very good. Um, so I think the, the bottling thing is definitely a bit unfair. I was at Chelsea yesterday to go and see them beat Leicester City in the in their in their quarter final, which is a very impressive performance. In that, it could ease. I mean, if they'd lost the game, it would have been the end of Chelsea's season. But the fact that they the fact that they managed to grind it out, win an extra time, and get through to the semi-finals, where they're lucky enough to play Southampton, means that their season will continue probably all the way through to the final at the end, which gives those players something to play for, given how given how toxic things have become there politically between Antonio Conte and the board, the fact that the players have managed to dig deep three days after losing in Barcelona and to prolong their season, um, it, I mean, I think it speaks very well of, of their commitment, which is something which has been brought into question recently. Any- I mean, we all kind of, we're all agreed, I think, that Conte's going to go at the end of the season. What's keeping that, that team together? I think that I think there's a bit of a sense of wounded pride about those players. Like I think they they are stung by how criticised they were in what Conte hilariously has dubbed the Mourinho season. Uh, that is 2015-16, and therefore they want to prove that they you know that they are still top players. I think some of them have some of them their futures are in doubt. I mean Eden Hazard and Thibaut Courtois most notably have got big interest from Real Madrid. Um, so I think so. I think there is a sense that they want to prove that they are, that they you know that they are still worthy of their place at Chelsea. That they can, they should stay. I mean, for those that want to stay, that they want to stay for the new manager, whoever that is. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, what what we see so often in in teams that where there's there's clearly a, a power vacuum at the you know coming coming up is that you see a lot of jockeying position. You see a lot of you know manoeuvres being made, and and obviously the the eye gets taken off the ball in terms of the football. But they they certainly performed pretty well, I thought, over t- over two legs against Barcelona. And yet their their season pretty much does come down to these these two FA Cup games, you know, possibly you know FA Cup semi final uh, and, and an FA Cup final. And if they if they win something at the end of that season, even if they finish outside the top four. It's something, isn't it? Intriguingly, Conte has never won a knockout competition as a manager, having lost, obviously, the FA Cup final to Arsenal last year, which I think says tells us something about how Conte's management is very much about getting his players to the maximum high level which they can perform week in, week out in the league, which is how he's won three Serie A titles and one Premier League, rather than a kind, what you might call a kind of inverted commas cup manager, who's more about raising his players for specific one-off instances rather than getting that kind of consistent high level. <coughs> Carlo Ancelotti. <laughs> An interesting thing about that is that that's the one thing missing from Chelsea this year. Is last year, their consistency was at both ends of the pitch and their defensive numbers and their attacking numbers just 
unbelievable how they were churning out such consistently high outputs. And actually, I don't think their peak output this season has been any different, really, to what their peak output was last season. They've It's been games such as the Bournemouth at home game would ring a bell, where they have just completely disappeared in games when they would have never done last year. And actually, I think in the big, big games, they've been okay. And it's really, if you take, even if you take the two Barcelona games, where they've lost is just, it's just a, what you'd call variance at the two key ends of the pitch. Courtois was awful in the, uh, in the away leg. Their actually numbers from the game weren't bad. And they probably do in those games where they need a to win games 1-0 in very high significant situations. They miss Costa. I think there's no doubt about that. And Morata doesn't, as good as he is, doesn't quite provide the same threat. Do you think that um, having not been in Europe last year, now having to play twice a week has made it harder for them to produce that same consistent high-level performance? I think, I don't know this, but I get the impression that Conte is a very, very detailed tactical coach and I get the fact that they were just having to play every week and the fact that he had time during the week to work on that with the same 11 players that he was playing every week probably had quite a big factor. I mean, they just, they've had to rotate a lot more than they did last year. One, one thing I would say about that is notable about this Chelsea squad is actually how short of real quality it is in so many areas. We all talk about the you know the the great Chelsea sides of of ten years ago, but they are kind of a memory now, and and a lot of a lot of quality hasn't been replaced. It's kind of funny how for a team that has spent so much money over you know a fifteen year period, how short they are in, in so many areas. There's a big hole in midfield, for example. They haven't really found you know the top class centre backs they you know they they've tried to you know they've they've just tried to buy you know wing backs and and uh, they they've got a lot of sort of eight eight out of ten players and their trophy charge has been kind of held together by two or three really you know Hazard and and Willian and uh, and some a lot of quite good players around them and that's quite surprising I find yeah I mean. A good friend of mine who's a Chelsea season ticket holder said to me the other day that he thinks that Bakayoko's the worst player of the Abramovich era. <laughs> Maybe not in absolute terms because, you know, there is Papi Gilabogi, but then... It's a whole other podcast, that. Given that they spent £40 million on him, uh, he, I mean, his underperformance is remarkable. He was hauled off yesterday at half-time because he got booked and uh, Conte was worried that he was going to get a second yellow. Recruitment has definitely been an issue over the last few years. They haven't bought enough really sort of quality world-class players it it's almost seems that they've tried to be a little bit too smart with their recruitment especially when you consider uh you know how they how well they've played the loan market that they're almost buying players with a view to selling them on or, or with a view to what their you know, residual value is or getting value out of the market as opposed to you know who, who who's going to do the job for them you know right now yeah, i mean you could probably you could probably argue that outside of hazard the two top world-class players they've had come through there in the last five years they've sold yeah De Bruyne yeah. and Salah yeah which is exactly which is perfect because that leads us on to Salah which is our next topic he scored f- another four goals on Saturday which I think takes him to 35 goals for this remarkable debut season or during, in fact not a debut season in English football at all because he was, <laughs> as we said he was here for Chelsea um, I didn't watch the game who did and what did you think about it I listened to the game I listened to it on on, on Talksport on the way back from um, uh, from Swansea, uh, and what what I will say, my expert analysis of that game was that Salah scored a lot of goals. He scored a hell of a lot of goals. Uh, I, every um, every time I, I tuned in, he, he, he was scoring a new goal in a different way, 
against exactly the same defenders who you, you'd think would have learned how to deal with him, but haven't. Rory, I remember you telling me at the start of the season you thought Salah would do well. Has he overperformed your expectations? I think it's hard to say he hasn't overperformed, even if it is slight. I think I would have definitely said at the start of the year that his underlying output of chances he was creating for other players and chances he was creating for himself at Roma would have suggested quite easily that he was going to be able to translate well to the Premier League. The other thing I would have definitely said is that a lot of the things that are quite key in using analytics and recruitment for is looking at the suitability and moving a player to a certain team. And there's no doubt that he has been signed for a team that suits the way to that plays a way that suits getting his maximum performance out of him. High speed attack, a lot of counter attacking, um, down particularly output down his side and if you compare that you know just as a one-off example to someone like Batshuayi who I guess an underlying statistical profile would also say could end up being not maybe on the same level as Salah but could end up being a top level Premier League player um, he didn't make the right move for him whereas Salah has definitely moved to the club that suited maximising his output the best but again 35 goals is definitely a slight overperformance, but I wouldn't call it an outlier. I think he'll probably, the likelihood is regressed slightly, but not by very much. Do you think that Liverpool signing Salah would have been a signing inspired by his data, like a kind of a data-driven recruitment approach? Um, well, I mean, it's hard to say what, you know, exactly what drives recruitment at individual clubs. But I think if you look at the players that Liverpool have signed in the last three years, I think a lot of them would have also been flagged up by underlying data so it, I think common sense would just say that there obviously is some kind of analysis there similar to using analytics that is playing a part in the recruitment process. Do you mean uh, Sadio Mane and Roberto Firmino? Mane, Firmino, Naby Keita, uh, even Van Dijk I would put in there as well. Um, Coutinho, I don't know how long ago that was. Uh, yeah but they're the key high profile signings of you know I, no one in from an analytics perspective I would have never said they are a really bad signing. I think they've all they, you'd always be on the side that they were a good signing. I mean, Salah has, like like you were saying, has his, his chance creation for for Roma last season was very good. But he he's never really shown this kind of this pure goal scoring touch. I mean, is his is his finishing this year? Is is that something? Is that how much of an outlier is that? And that, how how unpredictable was it? That that will be really interesting to see actually, because I don't think we can judge that over one season whether it is an outlier. So if you take someone like Kane. In his first season, when he was scoring loads of goals in the Premier League, people said, this is an outlier. But he's done it now so consistently that you have to accept that the quality of his finishing is just above a level that underlying data is going to be able to predict. I doubt Salah will be on that level. That's why I said he will probably regress to the mean slightly. Um, but there's no doubt that his finishing has been exceptional. And time will tell whether or not he can repeat that. I would go back to say that the way Liverpool play suits getting him into such strong finishing positions that's you know quite a key asset that means he should there should be some repeatability to what he's done in terms of goal scoring is it is it hard to judge a player like Salah because obviously last season he was playing in a slightly different position to what he is now and I was at the Watford game at the start of the season where in the first half he was completely crowded out because he was playing deeper and he was playing a lot wider than what he's playing now so obviously when you've got a player like Kane presumably it's quite easy to tell using the data how he's doing because he's always going to be getting into similar positions but whereas Salah has his position has sort of evolved over the course of a season do you think like Liverpool will have been even more surprised that he's kind of getting those results well it's interesting I mean I, 
Whether or not, I definitely don't think there'll be any luck behind it, but they have managed to put him in the position now that is getting the best out of him. And I think that is definitely something you, you could profile. You could profile at Roma how where most of his chances were coming from, where his key attacking outputs were coming from, where the, the areas they were coming from, the kind of the passes he may have been receiving from players before, the types of attacks. So I don't know, but I definitely think that it looks like Liverpool have done a lot of that and realised that they probably do have a very, very, very high value asset. And actually, that's the asset that should be channeling a lot of their attacking output through. Because if you look at... I mean, there's no doubt that there has been a slight decline in Mane's performance since Salah's been there. But I think a lot of that, if you watch them, is just that Mane is just forced to play quite a bit deeper. Salah is now the man on the shoulder all the time that Mane was before. Um, so I think there's obviously been a strategic thinking process at Liverpool to be like, right, Salah is our attacking asset. We're going to make sure we play a way that maximises his his performance. And, you know, it looks like it's been the right decision. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Given all the success that Liverpool have had signing attacking players who have been flagged up by data, do you think that they've struggled to find defensive players on, sim- on a similar grounds? Or is, it harder to fi- is it harder to buy defenders using data than it is attacking players? I think, uh, I mean, there's no doubt that Van Dijk is a strong data and visual identified you know one of the best defenders in the Premier League Um, on the subject of whether or not it's easier to identify attacking players and defensive players using data uh, it's definitely easier to identify attacking players that doesn't mean it's any more profitable or any more you know right to use data to evaluate defensive players I think that there's a lot of stuff you can do on evaluating defenders on how the areas around their average position on the pitch is penetrated by the teams they play against and not just using raw things like tackles and interceptions and that goes a lot that takes you a lot further in evaluating the predictive utility of their performance moving forward um, because it gives it a lot more context to how good they are as opposed to the team they were playing in Uh, on Liverpool I think there's no doubt their attacking recruitment has been better than their defensive recruitment but actually I think most Models are they're on they're they're picking out why Liverpool are 
bad defensively and it's actually a structural thing as opposed to the individual players obviously the individual players contribute but they're they are they continue to concede too many shots in dangerous areas which i think comes through you know a lot of the way they're organized and that part of that's out of the way they attack as well it's interesting because this is something this is a question that Jurgen Klopp gets asked all the time and he's um whenever he's asked like why do you guys concede so many goals he gets he loves to he prefers to blame it on individual mistakes and he I remember him one after the game where they drew three all at Arsenal around Christmas where they were brilliant for like 80 minutes, then had this terrible five minutes where they conceded three stupid goals out of nowhere. He, afterwards, he was asked in the press briefing, like, why are, you, why are you such an attacking coach? Do you ever want to curb, curb your instincts? And he was insisting, no, 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 I'm a really defensive coach. Like, I'm, I'm a defensive coach. I care a lot about de- defending. Um, but I think that's probably a way of getting himself off the hook and blaming his players. That's probably my impression of it. This, it, was, it was very similar after the Leicester game, which they won 3-2, but should have won it by a lot more they just conceded two stupid goals and I think I think I re- the, the exact thing he said was if a if a guy doesn't doesn't push out if a defender doesn't push up I can't drive it I can't take him in a car and drive him 15 yards out of the penalty area uh, again blaming it on an individual error and I think the way that Klopp sees defending is very different to the way English football has traditionally seen it as kind of a, almost a separation of powers between you've got your defence and you've got your attack whereas for Klopp I honestly think he he genuinely doesn't see the distinction between attack and defence. He sees the d- distinction as between you've got you've got the ball as a team or you don't have the ball as a team, and so it's not merely about attack being the best form of defence. If you attack if you're attacking well, that is your defence as well, and that that goes back to his his Dortmund sides, which actually when yeah as well as as Hummels and, and Subotic played for him. They didn't have a huge amount to do in those title-winning seasons because they their, their front pressing was was just so good that they were they were giving their defenders less to do, and that that's the problem that the Liverpool have. I know as a part of that, I know that Klopp also doesn't think that goalkeepers are a big deal. I know that last last summer the Liverpool board said to him, "How about we buy a new goalkeeper for this season, Jurgen?" And his approach was, "Well, you know, if we're going to spend that money, I'd rather spend the money on an outfield player because I I think we can get by with the keepers we've had." Obviously, in the course of this season, they've had to drop Mignolet and go to Carrius. I'm not sure whether Carrius is the long-term solution or whether they will have to go and buy someone in the summer. But clearly, this is an issue where he is slightly at odds with how we traditionally think about things in the UK. I think he can be... If, <laughs> the best way to describe Jürgen Klopp, you can definitely describe him as like a high-variance manager, a high-variance coach. If he ran a distribution curve of expected scores in the Liverpool games, you'd get a lot around the extremes, which if you compared to Conte or Mourinho. And... That's why you are going to see them lose 5-0 at City, but then also kind of, you know, outclass them and win 4-3 at home. And that's why they could, you know, they're in the quarterfinals of the Champions League and they could. There's nothing stopping you saying that there's a chance that they go to the Bernabeu and really expose a Real Madrid team if they drew them in the semi-finals, but also that they could get beaten 4 or 5-0. And I think that you can see that in the way they play. That's reflected. Given that they're such a, a high-variance team, are they generally performing in line with what you thought at the start of the season, Liverpool? Yeah, we had them as the se- we thought they'd be the second best team. Um, I think they're very high variance, and also the they're also kind of very susceptible to the way the other team plays. So if the other team suits Liverpool being able to counter attack at speed and you know expose them with pace, etc., then that suits them. But then they've had certain games where teams have perform the way which really frustrates Liverpool. You know, I think since Coutinho's gone, if you take the 
just a Swansea game where they lost 1-0 there, where teams did just be really deep, low block, and frustrate Manny and Salah being able to get any space off the shoulder. So I think they're very susceptible to the way the other team plays more than other teams. I was really actually very encouraged by the way they, they pursued Van Dijk. That having failed to get him in the in the summer, they could very easily go, you know, have gone, right, Jurgen, do you want do you want to spend this seventy five million on another player? He's like, No, we, we want we want this guy. We've identified him and we want we want this guy. And not only does he does he pass the eye test, but he also he he provides them with a with a real kind of measurable threat. At, at, you know, a set of pieces as well, which is um, you know he'll chip in with three or four goals a season, uh, and, and uh, it's the same with with Cater that they seem to have identified a player for a role, and and they're really quite dogmatic about wanting that player and nobody else. Yeah, um, away from Liverpool, further down the table, Rory, are there, are there any other teams who, through your own research, you think are are overperforming, or who you think are maybe perhaps undervalued by other forms of, of data analysis? Yeah, I mean it's interesting if you if you take a so if we talk about the it's interesting the kind of layers of statistical analysis you've got in football. So you've got where people probably think what still goes on inside clubs is we're just going to use results and goals as a way of measuring performance. Beyond that, you've got statistics such as shots, passes, dribbles, tackles that probably are used in the wrong context a lot of the time. And if you took the kind of the next form of that, it's turning that into a model. And I think expected goals would be the model that most people now might be aware of and are... Is that's, the the one that we, that's the one that we see on Match the Day at the end of every game when they'll flash up, you know, yeah, Swansea So 1.2. essentially you say we're going to a site, you know, rather than a shot to the scoreboard, it's worth zero or one. It either ends up in a goal or it doesn't. To an expected goals model, a shot will be worth somewhere between zero and one based on the percentage chance of it going in. And that depends on where it was, what the action before was, what part of the body the shot came from, who took it, loads of different things. A traditional expected goals model that was only shot based in evaluating the quality of shots and the quantity of shots the teams are creating and conceding without taking into consideration anything to do with the position of other players on the pitch would probably have Burnley somewhere near the bottom three but the truth is that has just been continually misrepresented and that a kind of simplified shot based model does actually miss a lot of key tactical dimensions the teams Burnley one key thing would be that it's just how well they block the ball really is a huge outlier to the rest of the team. Like a, a shot against them from 14 yards just is worth less than a shot from 14 yards against another team, just because of because the they're getting they're, they're getting bodies in the way. They're getting bodies in the way, and it's also there's there's I don't know if you, it's something to watch, but there is a technique thing to Tarkowski, Tarkowski and me how well they do it, and that's a key thing. And then there's also there's a certain defensive functionality to them as a team that you can start to model that really frustrates other teams being able to get into their natural way of playing. And I think that's also undervalued by models that are just using Burnley's previous performances because there is a, they do just have a stifling factor on the way other teams play. What practical things are they doing to stifle other, t- to stop other teams getting into their rhythm? Uh, they, well, very good coaching. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think they press in quite an uh, unconventional way. Uh, I think they actually attack in quite an unconventional way that they actually have a very very good mix they i think they've probably got a reputation being quite direct but they're a lot more variant in the way they attack than people give them credit for between playing out playing through midfield and and being direct um and they've got a lot of very awkward players to play against i don't think many models would say that ashley barnes is you know a kind of high level premier league center forward but i'm pretty sure if you did a survey of 
most Premier League centre-backs. They'd have him quite high up there as the most awkward player to defend against slash be able to predict what he's going to do in games. Oh, I mean, you, you say models in, in plural and, and I think this is maybe one of the, the biggest kind of uncertainties about, about XG. That There's not one XG model. Everybody has their own. Is that right? Yeah, but, but I say when I said the traditional or what I'd call a basic XG model has... Um, would have Burnley as still significantly overachieving. I think that model, there is a number of kind of consistent like factors in it that a lot of XG models would have, right? So where the shot comes from on the pitch is assigned a certain value. Right. Whether or not it was a cross or a through ball before it is assigned a certain value. Okay. Uh, whether or not it came from a defensive er- error is assigned a certain value, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, just, just to take an example, just to kind of break this down, say you get a shot from 14 yards with your left foot from a cross and there's there's nobody there's no defender in between the mm-hmm. you know you can you can model that right yeah does it take into account whether the player is left footed right footed or two footed so this is what i'm so i would say that a very basic model wouldn't right and that's why that can still miss a lot and i think we need to move beyond xg as a kind of basic concept to be able to start to model more and more complex factors that a lot of just basic event data and shot models can't pick up right because i mean my my, my main I mean, I think the reason that a lot of people don't understand it is because every shot is by definition unique. And while you can, you know, you can cluster them, it's it's actually really difficult. I mean, it's really difficult to model a shot, basically, that, you know, given how many millions and billions of unique situations, yeah. you know, that, that can be thrown up in just, just to, you know, that, that, that one act. I think, but I don't know, I've already taken the view, I've always taken the view that being difficult is good. As in, you know, being difficult means that if you can get that right, the competitive advantage you're going to be able to gain is going to be significant. And I think that's where football is quite unique, relevant to other sports. If you take um, if you take golf, for example, then a lot of what analytical principles will pick up, will 98% of, the, of that will probably be picked up by the human eye as well because it's very confined, set space, etc. I mean, that, I've just thrown those numbers out. Of nowhere, because yeah. of one guy in one club. Exactly. So when people say that analytics isn't suited to football... I think what they mean is I think they just mean it's really hard, right? It's not it's not suited. But I would say that the harder it is, the more suited it is because the more opportunity there is to gain competitive advantage if you get it right. So accepting and where people that are trying to advocate the use of analytics in football have to get themselves to is that don't just keep it as a simple generalised expected goals model. Accept that there's huge levels of complexity and huge factors and every shot's unique. And then try to be realistic about the limitations of that, but also the potential strengths of being able to model all of those complex factors. How how far away, how far away are we from that stage? Because it just seems like there's there's still so much white noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. long, long way away, long, long way away. And I'd say there's different. If you take the you know different sectors in sport or in football, are kind of attempting analytical modelling, right? And I'd say you've got people have been very successful in betting and they'd be right at the top but that makes a lot of sense because it's always been quite easy for them to correlate the strength of their model versus what the outcome is which is essentially just profit right whereas then if you take clubs they'd be a lot further behind but i think where clubs have been quite resistant is that it's very hard you know when we've accepted that you know there's huge variance it's difficult to model football's a low scoring game there's also not many games in the season it was going to take a lot of time to be able to see the rewards of a successful model. So it's just natural that that would be behind other sectors. So I think we're definitely further behind there. But also, I think even the modelling that's going on, I think we have to accept that it can always be improved because of the number of complex factors there are. And 
being able to integrate all of those things. I think anyone who tries to tell you it's easy is just wrong. Do you think that the recent successes of, say, Brentford or Brighton, who are obviously both owned by yeah. men who've been very successful in betting and like to apply those models to how they run their clubs, do you think that points to like a growing receptiveness in English club football to this kind of thing? Um, the truth is it probably hasn't transcended into the receptiveness you'd, you'd you'd expect um i think that what probably hasn't helped in the receptiveness is that firstly i think if you take those two clubs if you take what's the common theme there in the structures is that that structure is being put in place by the owner so i think it's very difficult if it doesn't happen at ownership level that it ends up actually kind of over overarching the whole strategy of the club and actually the kind of political dynamics of so many football clubs are so complicated and there's a lot of big job insecurity. There's a lot of, you know, resistance to innovation because if it goes wrong, we're out of the job. And that's why it's so important that it does come from the owner. Because if you take the owners of those two clubs, and I don't know, but I'm fairly sure if they were having a poor run of form, but their underlying performance metrics were saying this performance is okay, the manager's not getting sacked, which probably wouldn't happen at other clubs if the owner wasn't in charge of that, that process. But um, I think that also what, probably needs to happen is there needs to be a greater marrying of marrying of the two communities you've got a traditional football community and you've got a kind of analytic analytics community that is trying to get expected goals into the mainstream and it's not probably not doing a very good job of accepting that the complexities that you've talked about for as a starting point so therefore there are limitations it's just saying no xg will solve everything rather than saying no this is what it can do and this is how it can you know get us closer to where we need to get to and the football world probably needs to try and integrate it in a certain different way to what they're doing at the moment, which isn't in a strategic way. It's almost as a kind of like error check, right? What do the numbers say? Is this player any? Is this player good or is he not? And it's quite binary. This, this I think, is is the main, the main sticking point, and it's almost as if two tribes have emerged, which are becoming ever ever more entrenched. I think, in theory, potentially, that there is there's so much great, you know, insight to be to be gained from almost applying an academic rigor to football you know people are writing master's dissertations and, and, and on football people are doing phds in it that, that that kind of stuff can only really benefit uh you know the english game which has has really been you know quite boastful of its anti-intellectual streak o over the years but where where I, I suppose a lot of the you know the analytics crowd i guess we you know i think where, where a lot of them go wrong is where they their own intellectual uh you know work becomes a form of dogma in itself as if you know I, I think i really think a lot of people uh you know in stats can could, could benefit from from just being a little bit more open a little bit more open about the limitations and not saying we have the golden key to, to understanding football and you are all stupid yeah I couldn't, I couldn't agree more i could not agree more and that has actually been the i think that side of the stats community has been as as much of a hindrance as the football community to Pla the actual penetration. Playing devil's advocate, though, do you think that when that marrying of those kind of two communities does take place and when it does become more mainstream, do you think that is a good thing for English football and, and for football generally? Or do you think it kind of reinforces the power structures we've already got? Because the statistical stories we've been kind of fed so far are always through this kind of almost like egalitarian kind of prism where it's like, You've got teams like uh, Brentford and, and Michelin in Denmark and, and Brighton to an extent. And it's this attitude of, oh, well, these teams aren't traditional powerhouses and they need a new way to catch up with the big boys because they can't 
afford to spend eight million on Paul Pogba. Mm-hmm. So they chase these kind of alternative methods. But when surely when one of those clubs achieves, you know, a certain level of success and these models become more mainstream, are you not just going to get the kind of best and most expensive models adopted by the clubs with the most cash? They and already these are, clubs though, will be left behind. They already are. I mean, the, the big clubs are doing most of their data work. You know, it, well, it's certainly certainly not open. Certainly not out in the open, wasn't it? Arsenal bought, you know, Arsenal bought um, Stat DNA. Stat DNA. There's there's a real kind of secret arms race going on. So so yeah, I, I think. But it do, it doesn't stop, you know, Conte getting sacked at the end of the season, does it? Or it doesn't stop. It seems to be on quite an almost shallow level. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think there's there's a big big difference, at, particularly at the big clubs, about the work that is going on in data and how much it is being implemented into decision making so it's like you say about the recruitment of Liverpool the truth is we don't know how much the data had a say and how much Jurgen Klopp had a say and how much the owners had a say and that's actually I think where the real challenge moving forward see I don't see if you take I don't really see it as a data issue it's more just a way to find competitive advantage at the moment there is such inefficiency in the way data is being used by clubs that it's a significant competitive advantage who knows in 25 years we might be at a point that everyone is you know reaching a level of perfection with the way they're using it and identifying talent and there's the, there's an ex competitive advantage so i think that's i guess that would be an answer to the question about whether that does happen yes it probably does get to a point where if everyone is at the same level and doing the same things it just reinforces the strength of the teams with the big money and then it becomes a job of the smaller clubs to find the next competitive advantage i think do you think that um it's harder to find a competitive advantage in international football or it's harder to accurately predict and model international football than domestic football given there's far less data on it i think it's definitely harder to accurately predict and model therefore the the therefore it, it the potential for the advantage found is bigger because it's harder to model um you've obviously got severe limitations in data of the players that are playing international level playing together um a lot of the games aren't relevant to the games that they're playing in the world cup so you do have to move away from a kind of team-based model and start to move towards a more uh, very granular player-based model that tries to model player performance, tries to model the suitability of players to other players based off a limitation of data that they've got playing together and that's very, very difficult. But as I said, I think the competitive advantage, if you can get that right in international football, is probably bigger because if you take take a, a Premier League club and if you've got, you're just trying to say we're going to try and simulate a game or a season and what's the percentage chance of Man City finishing here, Everton finishing here? The truth is, a basic level of analysis can probably get you to a relatively competent stage because they play the same teams every week. They've got results against different teams. You've watched performances against different teams. So just to kind of like intuitively doing it, you know, makes you quite, you can probably get to a higher basic level than you can in the Champions League or definitely in the World Cup because you're, base data set of what you've got to use to be able to try and price that or percentage chance that up is severely limited so I think that whilst it makes it harder if if you get closer to reaching the top level of being able to do it the competitive advantage you gain is bigger I, th- I was talking to um, the Iceland manager before Euro 2016 Jaime, Jaime, the joint manager at the time Jaime Halgrimson and he was he was saying that the amount of time you get in international football to prepare can actually offer you a real, really big competitive advantage. You're saying by the time the players arrive, 98% of your job is already done. And for, for those countries or for those coaching teams that 
that use that time in, a, in an efficient way that there, there is potentially a huge advantage to be to be gained there and that it which is why i think you know the the world cup <coughs> will be won by the team which has done the best kind of preparation before the tournament mm. rather than, than you know what, what they do during necessarily you know, during those four weeks i agree with that and i think that and that's a really good point about time is the fact that they are it's almost they're in a you know, the, uh, one of the kind of kickbacks given to being able to use innovation around data, etc. in football is that that's a very kind of long term approach to take and that clubs, not that I agree with this, but the clubs don't have the time to be able to integrate that on a week to week basis. But that's definitely not an excuse that can be used for not embracing it at international level. Um, who do you think is going to win the World Cup? Uh, well, I don't think in binary terms, but um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I think we make Brazil favourites here. Yeah. But there's a very obviously a very very big caveat on that, which is certain players not fit at the moment. Do you think if how much of a difference would Neymar make if he if he wasn't fit? Uh, I think somewhere between ten and fifteen percent at least. Yeah. And would he then have what Spain and Germany and France? They, yeah, and Argentina be those five. Yeah. I'd go for France without a huge amount of confidence, but look at the squad. Surely Brazil. I reckon Brazil. And what about the um, the final stages of the Champions League? What what do we think? Yeah. Uh, I think that the final stages of the Champions League are fascinating, uh, particularly this year with the teams involved, because it really does come down to, there's a lot of, you know, going back to this thing about being difficult to simulate because the teams don't play each other. And there's a really like fascinating clash of styles. Madrid-Juventus will be really interesting. But I, you know, I think if I was looking at the way, or the way the markets are pricing it up now, I think, that Liverpool's X factor still is quite a big thing. They will be very, very high variance, but they do have the ability to beat you know all the big teams. As do Juventus. They don't have a similar style. One of the reasons I think Liverpool were consistently undervalued in the Champions League is because, like I said, a lot of teams frustrated them by that low block and the way they played against you know, teams like Swansea. None of these teams, apart from maybe Juventus, are going to do that to them. Everyone is going to come onto them, and everyone is therefore going to give them the opportunity to counterattack. So if they don't, if their defence does hold up and they are able to counter and play the way they have in some of the big games this year, then I think they could be a real threat. Do you think Manchester City might be too open to win the Champions League, or do you? No, I think they're rightly favourites. Uh, they're the best team in Europe at the moment. And uh, obviously there's a number of factors that will come in, but I don't think, I think there's obviously this thing that people are saying they haven't played anyone of the class they're going to have to play to win it. But I almost think that's a kind of, it's just a flaw of how, it's almost how good they've been that people need to find one thing to say, to say about them and that's it. You know, they can't do it until it's put in front of them. And actually all the big teams, apart from that one game against Liverpool that have been put in front of them in the Premier League, they've dealt with pretty well. At the start of the season, would your model have predicted City getting 100 points and 110 goals or whatever they're on for? No. No, I don't think... I think we were quite slow to react to actually how good they were. Uh, We definitely had them as the best team, but no, definitely not as good as they were. Like, we wouldn't have had them as the best team in the world, which I think they are. Excellent. Well, on that note, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back. Thank you, Jonathan. No, no, thank you. Thank you, Rory. Thank you. And thank you, Luke. Thank you very much. Um, And we'll see you all again next Monday. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 